But anyway, that's not what you... I don't think that's what you called about. No, no. I, I called because I want you to tell me the story of what I think is, is the mm-hmm. scariest movie experience of your life. <laughs> my name is Dan Delgado, and I'm on a phone call with my older brother, Eric. I want him to tell me a story I've heard him tell a number of times. It's about a very scary movie experience he had when he was eight years old. I think it's the scariest movie experience of his life. But as it turns out, it's not. So he proceeds to tell me about all of the movies that truly scared him. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Okay, seriously, The Ring. So there's The Ring. And then I ended up, like, on my knees on the the floor in the theater. And I was screaming. Yeah, it was... It was so awful. <laughs> Wait, you were screaming? And next he talks about... The Blair Witch, of course. Yes, for sure. There's another one. The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, that one, I had to leave the theater in the middle because it was too much. Like, it was... I, I was, like, hyperventilating. It was terrible. But it wasn't so necessarily scary. It was... Um, it was just so stressful. And next we move on to... Yep, yep. There was the Faces of Death. The Faces of Death series. You know, this is like the early 80s, mid 80s, and then they kind of fade. And then there's one in like 92, 93. It's like number five. And and it's released to theaters. And if you... (laughs) This is how they bill it. If you stay in your seat the whole time, you get a certificate to, (laughs) to authenticate that you did this. What? And so, yeah, so so as twisted as that sound, it was like, oh, that's something we got to try. You yeah, know? it's an endurance. And so that was sure. me, uh, me and uh, Madeline, right? And yeah. um, and we went to that, and and that was another one that I couldn't do it. I had to leave the I had to leave the theater, and Madeline stayed in like a champ, and she got the certificate. <laughs> <laughs> and one I'm not all that familiar with. There's one called uh, Darkness Falls. Darkness Falls. <laughs> it's like this. Um, uh, it's gonna sound silly, I guess, but it's like a you know a really disgusting witch that uh, is terrorizing the town. But the, when when she got cranking, it was like, what the fuck? Get me out of here! <laughs> <laughs> and no list can truly be complete without. And let's see. Of course, the original Halloween, which I saw. At, at like I guess I'm maybe 10 or 11 because it's one of those where it made it immediately you know to television like maybe within 15 months or whatever I don't remember almost just about everything makes it onto the TV version and I'm seeing it at this Halloween party and so there was a bunch of us there and it was just like I mean all we did was, was scream all but you know you can imagine <laughs> at that point Okay, at that time, at 10, 11 years old, we had never seen anything like Michael Myers. And finally, 20 minutes into the conversation, he gets to the movie I want him to talk about. And then there's Beyond and Back. Beyond and Back. You have to keep this in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going into all those other films, every single one of them, I knew what I was dealing with. I knew it. I got myself into going to get scared mode. So this particular situation was not that at all. And let me explain this to you. 
when Eric was about eight or nine, he and my eldest brother, Joey, would get dropped off at the movie theater by my mother. And she would just pick a movie, probably based on the movie poster, and send them in. And this one time, she definitely made the wrong choice. And let me tell you how it starts, okay? Mm -hmm. The very first thing is this um, handheld camera that's um, tooling around through a a cemetery at night. And you're seeing gravestones, and you're seeing, you know, the the little flowers and the grass and the whole trees, and, you know, they're, they're giving you all that. And then some, like, you know, Orson Welles, type guy just appears in like a big cloak and <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay I'm totally paraphrasing okay but he's like um, for years people have wondered what it was like after death and now for the first time scientific evidence researchers and geniuses that we've all gathered are going to tell you exactly what it's like because we know now that it's possible to go beyond and back. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> now, I want you to keep in mind that Eric has only seen this movie one time in 1978 when he was eight years old. And his recall on that opening is pretty impressive because this is actually what it sounds like. You are about to see one of the most extraordinary films of our time. A movie that dares to investigate the possibility of life after death. Everything you will see is based on the scientific studies of parapsychologists and doctors, as well as on the testimony of real people who were pronounced dead, yet miraculously recovered, and lived to tell of their incredible journey. And then the words come up, and I remember just big letters, beyond and back. And then they proceed to kill, I don't know, 17, 18 people over the next 90 minutes. And it's not like a Schwarzenegger movie where, you know, they're all going to, you know, die in the mall at one point. It was like six minutes of each chronicling each death and then the experience afterwards. I remember a guy... um, colliding with a, a semi and then go, going off a mountain and, um, you know, his car going over the side and, and then his body is all broken and then they all get down there and there's that fish eye. It's almost like a David Lee Roth video. So it's like that. And then, um, you know, so first of all, the guy dies. He's a horrible death. And then he's not dead or whatever. Suddenly I felt as if somehow I... I had pushed out of my own body and started to float upward above them. I could see the nurse trying to revive me. And I knew I was dead. Then, then there was a blinding light. It began to envelop me. And I gotta tell you, at no point did I think this was a good thing. But then it gets, like, particularly bad when um, somebody... (laughs) In one of these cases, somebody went to hell. I think it was a girl. Maybe she even she even killed herself. I can't I can't remember that. I, that might be what happened, and maybe that's the reason she goes. How was I going to face them? My whole world had fallen apart. I didn't care anymore. 
I decided to kill myself. But anyway, when she goes, I mean, it's the whole deal. It's the fiery pits and, you know, there's, you know, ghouls running around and, um, you know, the <laughs> horned creatures. And I came out of the tunnel into some horrible swamp where people, all of them dead, were moaning and crying out. The smell of death was everywhere. Oh, God, pray for me. You know, I, it's all of it. And screams, and I mean, I'm screaming. I, I, I don't even know why I stayed, honestly. I guess I just didn't know what else to do. Every freaking moment was, was terrifying. It was awful. And I remember getting out of there like I escaped death myself. That's how I felt. And I was so, <laughs> so mad at mom. <laughs> so this is all just you remembering it from that one time that you saw it when you were eight. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. While Beyond and Back clearly had a lasting impression on Eric, I would find it hard to believe that people today would have a similar reaction. Even eight-year-olds today might not be too impressed with it. But when Eric first told me about Beyond and Back, I honestly thought he was making it up. I had never heard of it. When I looked it up, not only was I surprised to find out that it existed, but that it was also very successful. It made a little over $23 million in 1978. Putting that in 2018 dollars, that comes to a little over $89 million. And it turns out that the company that made Beyond and Back knew exactly what they were doing. Throughout the 1970s, they made a number of documentaries featuring questionable science and alternative facts that sailed completely under the radar of Hollywood while racking up the box office. Today, we're taking a look at the company responsible for irresponsible documentaries, Sun Classic Pictures. Welcome to the industry. In the late 1960s, the era of New Hollywood unofficially began and would go on throughout the 1970s. This was the period which saw a shift from the classic studio system era to more personal films from directors, which also meant more violence and more sex. It's when exploitation films really take hold and the grindhouse fully hits its stride. And while critics and most audiences, myself included, applaud this time, not everyone was happy about it. The era that produced Woodstock, Counterculture, and Charles Manson was just too much for some people. And none of this was family-friendly. That's where Charles Sellier comes in. Sellier, a Mormon studio technician with a 10th grade education, would start Sun Classic Pictures in 1969 with the intention of making movies for families. Then enter in Patrick Frawley Jr., a wealthy entrepreneur who sold the company Papermate to Gillette in the 1950s for millions and by 1970 was the owner of Schick Razorblades. In some cases, you might see a film from Sun Classic called Schick Sun Classic. Frawley was politically very conservative. He once tried to pull out of a $3 million advertising contract with ABC after they aired a documentary that was critical of Richard Nixon. Frawley joined the newly formed Sun Classic Pictures, which operated out of Park City, Utah, far, far away from Hollywood, likely because his views lined up with Cellier and Sun Classic's view that family entertainment was being ignored. They did have a point that the audience that they were tapping into was generally underserved by, you know, the other movie studios. I mean, there wasn't anyone else out there really making sort of religious pictures in, in kind of a, a serious way. That's Sean Munger. He's a blogger. 
I am a blogger, I'm a historian, and I also have a podcast, a, a history podcast called Second Decade, um, where I deal with interesting stories of the 18-teens, the second decade of the 19th century. I have a PhD in environmental history, and in my uh, uh, daily life, I work as a consultant, and I work on issues involving climate change. Okay, so Sean is more than just a blogger, but he's dead on about Sun Classic's aim to fill a void. And when it came to the kinds of movies that Sun Classic wanted to make, there was basically two kinds, at least initially, and always rated G. The first kind was nature-based movies. These usually feature some kind of a mountain man, either hiding out for a crime he didn't commit or perhaps just preferring to wander around the woods for 90 minutes. And this mountain man likely wouldn't talk too much, but he might make friends with, say, a bear. 1971's Toklat was about a mountain man who has to head back into the woods to hunt down his best friend, a bear named Toklat. 1976's fantastically titled The Adventures of Frontier Fremont is about a guy from St. Louis who tires of city life and retreats into the wilderness to become friends with an old mountain man and adorable woodland creatures. 1974's When the North Wind Blows was about a trapper who accidentally kills a boy and flees into the woods. When the boy's father finds him years later and tells him that he can now come back into society because everyone knows it was an accident, the trapper decides to stay because now he's become one with nature. And all of these were cheaply made and seemed to come and go quickly. But in 1974... Sun Classic hit pay dirt with The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. It was based on a novella that Charles Selliger wrote himself. It was released the same year as When the North Wind Blows, and has basically an identical plot. See if this sounds familiar. James Adams runs into the wilderness to avoid going to jail for a crime he didn't commit. He spends most of the movie walking around the woods, hanging out with a bear. Years later, when his daughter finds him and tells him, hey, you can now come back into society, he declines because now he's become one with nature. The life and times of Grizzly Adams may not sound very exciting. In fact, most of it features Dan Haggerty just walking around the woods. But it did do some very exciting business. It managed to rack up $45 million at the box office in 1974 and 75. That's more than movies like Death Wish, The Longest Yard, and Chinatown all released that same year. The success of the movie Grizzly Adams led to a TV series about that character, which ran for two years on NBC and also had a couple of TV movies thereafter. And this brings us to the other kind of movie that Sun Classic made. I know one of the early pictures they did was the distribution of uh, a European, I think it was a European documentary of documentary in quotes of Chariots of the Gods famous uh, text which introduced the whole um, uh, ancient aliens nonsense into our culture Chariots of the Gods Chariots of the Gods the international bestseller by Eric Von Dänigen that shattered conventional theories about history and archaeology now Sun International brings it to the screen in a startling new film Chariots of the Gods explores Von Dänigen's controversial and explosive theory that beings from other galaxies visited Earth in ancient times. Did a genius from another world design the pyramids? Is there evidence of a prehistoric airfield in the Andes? And what about the giant stone faces that brood over Easter Island? All over the Earth, the evidence is there. For an intriguing, fascinating, mind-opening experience, see Chariots of the Gods, 
Rated G. As our multi-hyphenate friend Sean Munger pointed out, Sun Classic didn't make the pseudo-documentary Chariots of the Gods. It was a West German production. But they did bring it to America, and people did see it. So have you ever wondered where the idea of aliens building the pyramids, or aliens building Stonehenge, or aliens building anything came from? You can partially thank Sun Classic for popularizing that. Chariots of the Gods proved to be an easy buck, and so Sun Classic started to make their own documentaries full of pseudoscience and alternative facts. There was the Outer Space Connection. The Outer Space Connection revealed startling new proof that Earth is being visited by travelers from another world. The Outer Space Connection, an astonishing motion picture experience between Earth and the stars. Experience the Outer Space Connection from Sun International, rated G. Which seemed to go down a similar path as Chariots of the Gods, but it did feature a narration by Rod Serling. Then there was the awesomely titled The Amazing World of Psychic Phenomena. You will see actual footage, never before seen by the public, which shows some of the most startling displays of psychic power ever filmed. Psychic experiences have been documented throughout the ages and continue to be recorded today. Do you have extrasensory perception? You will be able to decide for yourself as we boldly explore whether or not man's mind really does have control over matter. Don't miss the amazing world of psychic phenomena from Sun Classic Pictures. In Mysterious Monsters, we had Mission Impossible's Peter Graves leading a search for, well, I'll let him tell you. We've all heard of the reported sightings of this creature, a creature most of us know as Bigfoot. We've read about it in our newspapers and heard about it on radio and television. And some of you, like me, might have been skeptical about these reports, wondering how it could be possible for a sizable population of 8-foot, 500-pound monsters to live among us on the edge of our industrialized society. Well, I was skeptical, but I was also tantalized by what I heard. So I decided to find out for myself whether Bigfoot was fact or fiction. But it was 1976's In Search of Noah's Ark where Sun Classic really scored. We'll try to determine if the story of Noah is true and if the Ark, in fact, does rest on the slopes of Mount Ararat. In our search, we will examine the historical accuracy of the Bible. We will experience the story of Noah. We will investigate the possibilities of a worldwide flood. We will relive the many adventures of the expeditions that have scaled Mount Ararat, looking for the Ark. And we will take part in a number of startling new discoveries. This may be the most incredible film you will ever see. This is how the movie begins, and what follows, as you might imagine, is a collection of talking heads, narration, and goofy recreations. All done without a hint of humor, and very much claiming to be the gospel about what happened. And while this may all seem a bit ridiculous today, and not a lot of people would buy into this, in 1976, a lot of people certainly did. In Search of Noah's Ark grossed an impressive $55 million dollars. It was the sixth highest grossing movie that year. And so, Sun Classic, which had started with nature-based G-rated movies, had now moved into an entirely new direction. You know, parents with young kids who didn't feel comfortable taking their kids to movies very often because they were, you know, so full of, you know, violence and things like that. And, oh, now we have this, you know, here's movies that we can take our kids to. 
And so Grizzly Adams is in that vein. And then it's not a far jump. It's like, okay, well, let's do something, you know, maybe with a religious or spiritual nature. And, you know, you get onto Noah's Ark. And so that's a big hit. And then, okay, well, where can we go from there? And then you build on and, uh, you know, the other directions that they went. Sun Classic would continue to make documentaries like this, and they would continue to do good business. Charles Sellier would tell the Washington Post in 1977, Look, I've done 26 feature-length films and made $15 million a film, and you don't even know who I am. If I was in Hollywood now, I'd be Cecil B. DeMille. 1978's Beyond and Back, the movie that terrified my brother in the opening of this show, would take in $23 million, and the following year, In Search of Historic Jesus would net 22. Sun Classic didn't just keep things spiritual with their cheap documentaries. Their take on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln included the debunked idea that the North was really behind John Wilkes Booth's assassination and helped him escape to Canada. The movie The Lincoln Conspiracy is different for Sun Classic in that it's basically a docudrama. It was, you know, it originally was written more of a, a documentary, and, and the, the, when we first shot the movie, it was intercut between the narrative story and Brad Crandall, who was our narrator, on screen, talking about different stuff, showing different evidence and all that. And we did a lot of testing, and so we tested the movie that way, and it tested miserably, because he just kept interrupting the narrative flow of it. So we reworked the movie so it was just an, uh, a narrative documentary. That's James L. Conway. He directed The Lincoln Conspiracy. He also directed In Search of Noah's Ark and Beyond and Back, among others, for Sun Classic. And if you're wondering how it was that James Conway could make a movie with such outrageous claims, for him, he was just making a movie. Um, there was a small fringe group of people who sort of believed that it was this conspiracy. Um, I don't know that it was or wasn't. We, in my mind, I was just telling a, a good, interesting, uh, dramatic story mm-hmm. that was a little bit controversial. I don't think we were really propagating that this was what actually happened. But, you know, in these days, seeing what's going on with the politics in the U.S., uh, anything is probably possible. But if you consider that as a kid, our multi-hyphenate blogger, Sean Munger, actually encountered this movie in a place it probably should have never been shown. I think I was about nine I believe it was about fourth grade. Uh, I associate the memory with teacher that uh, that I had. And I know I know he was fourth grade teacher, and we liked him very much, Mr. Palm. I was wondering what happened to him. But as teachers do, especially in you know, elementary school, uh, I've taught middle school myself, so I know you often have a lot of time to fill. And earlier in my school career, this, is, this sort of dates me. This was in the early '80s. You would go into the classroom and you'd see like the, pro- the movie projector set up on the on the table, and you go. Yes, we can see a movie today. Uh, but this was just coming out of that era, and VCRs and TVs were just starting to come in. So they were on that. Maybe if you were, I don't know when you were in school, if you remember, they were on those those big carts that would wheel you'd wheel through the hallway or whatever. But so we went in. We saw you know we were having a movie that day, and you know Mr. Palm was like, "Okay, we're going to watch this movie about uh, Abraham Lincoln," and so he puts on the tape and it's the Lincoln conspiracy and it's and it was presented as I recall uh, fairly uncritically I don't I mean of course it was many 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 years ago and I was nine so I don't remember if there was any uh, commentary that he made about hey this may not be the truth or whatever I certainly don't recall any of that 
But I remember seeing the film, and I wouldn't say that I, I believed it. It looked a little thick to me, even at nine, because it just seemed very... Uh, it was like a bad TV show, kind of like. Um, but it, 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 as I recall, it had been presented pretty much as kind of a historical, you know, not gospel truth from your textbook, but at least it was not being uh, presented as fantasy as it, as it probably should have. And then add in that the Lincoln conspiracy actually begins with this narration. Ladies and gentlemen, Everyone sitting in this audience has been exposed to the traditional story of the assassination of President Lincoln. For over a century, history books have taught us that the murder was committed by a crazed actor named John Wilkes Booth. The history books go on to say a few Southern rebels helped him and no one else. The motion picture you are about to see will shock you because the true story of President Lincoln's assassination cannot be found in any history book. It is a story of corruption, treachery, and cover-up. It is a story every American has the right to know. And the lines have blurred, to say the least. One of the things that you need to understand about Sun Classic is that they operated in a very unique way. They didn't just release their movies like any other movie studio. They used a technique known as forewalling. And what was forewalling? You would go into a market and you would say three nights only at this theater and two nights only at that theater. And the reason is we would go in and literally rent the theater. That's why it was called four wall. We would just rent the theater. We'd say, here's $500, whatever they charge us. And every penny that comes into the box office was ours. They got their own kept the concessions, but we got everything that came to the door. And these were movies that normal uh, people weren't producing. And there was a huge audience for them. And so... Search of Noah's Ark was the, the most successful of them. And they all have one other thing in common, and that is nobody in those days did TV commercials. And the reason we did TV commercials was mostly because we were only in a place for one or two or three days. So you had to let people know that you were only in there for a short period of time. But we found very promotable concepts for these movies that sounded great in the 30-second commercial. And Search of Noah's Ark certainly qualified in that regard. So if you were in San Diego and you saw an ad for In Search of Historic Jesus on the television, the end would sound like this. Find out what astounding proof has been discovered about the most controversial question of all time. See In Search of Historic Jesus. Rated G. Coming soon to theaters throughout the San Diego viewing area for a limited engagement. Watch for this ad in your newspaper for a theater near you. A limited engagement. All of Sun Classics seem to be limited engagements. And the other thing that set Sun Classic apart was their use of research marketing. Now, I had read that they would assemble a group of people and hook wires up to them to measure their reactions to test footage. And while this image is highly amusing, right, it so unfortunately wasn't exactly the was... truth. They would put people in a room and then they would put wires on them to, to measure how they would react to things? This, that was, uh, early, yes, it was a dial that they hold. And by the way, it's still done. It's a dial that they hold, and as they watch the movie, you turn the dial either to the left when you're getting bored or to the right when you're excited, and it becomes a subconscious sort of thing. And to this very day, uh, if you go to, to Las Vegas, I forget which hotel is that, CBS has uh, a big theaters there, and they go and they test all their pilots there. But all the networks test their pilots, and it's the same basic device. They, uh, people use a dial to, 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 to get a score, and then they, they'll do focus groups. And that's what we did. We did the dials and then focus groups. Um, and it was very early in its development back then. 
you'd think that this upstart company in Utah that was successful in making movies and television and was using unique marketing techniques to get their movies out there would get you some attention in Hollywood. But with the kinds of movies that Sun Classic made, it didn't. We were four walls, so we were sort of outside the normal stream of that. We were always listed as one of the most uh, biggest independent produ- uh, producers at the time. Um, but they sort of looked down their nose at the kind of movies we were making, and it wasn't really legitimate movie making the, the way that Hollywood was doing it. So uh, we were sort of not considered at all. And they were usually ignored or hated by critics. Here's Gene Siskel talking about In Search of Historic Jesus. The film is In Search, in Search of Historic Jesus, one of those pseudo-documentary films made by the folks who have given us such dumb films as Beyond and Back, The Lincoln Conspiracy, and In Search of Noah's Ark. Those are great, weren't they? Really terrific. Yeah. Right. Well, as critics, Roger and I really detest the film that this company makes. It's Sun Classic Pictures out of Salt Lake City, and Sun Classic Pictures doesn't like us or many other critics. They wouldn't let us use a scene or let us take an excerpt from their new movie, In Search of Historic Jesus. It's a film that suggests in its hyped-up TV ads that it's going to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Obviously something a lot of people are really interested in, to say the least. But the film proves no such thing. All it does is ask a lot of questions. Is this true? Is this not true? Or could this be true? You're looking at scenes television station WBBM-TV took of crowds going to see this movie at a downtown theater in Chicago. The makers of this type of movie typically rent the theater and jack up the admission price a half a buck, and yet the crowds keep coming. And what do people get? A cheap magic show. There's a sequence where Jesus walks on water. Look closely, you can see the ledge in the water the actor is walking on. Elsewhere, the film speculates on what Jesus did between the ages of 12 and 30. Here, the actor playing Jesus supposedly visits India and Persia in a sequence shot in Utah. This is an offensive retelling of a great story. If this film had been done right, it could have been beautiful, moving, and needless to say, very important. Instead, this is a cheaply made film that lifts battle footage from other biblical epics and calls it its own. The late 1970s proved to be the high point for Sun Classic. Their movies are making money, and thanks to Grizzly Adams, they had an inroad to television. This led to a number of projects, and finally, to some respect in the industry. My, my career really got, in terms of, of getting any kind of respect, started uh, because of our doing those movies and doing Grizzly Adams. Um, I went to NBC with Chuck, and we sold Grizzly Adams as a TV series. Mm-hmm. And because of the success of that show, and at the time we were a non-union company, we were based in Park City, Utah, where we shot Grizzly Adams, gorgeous place. And uh, we owned, the company that owned us owned um, Classics Illustrated comic books. Do you remember those? They were uh, comic books that basically told the, the classic stories, The Last of the Mohicans and I know exactly Robin what you're talking Hood. about. Yes, yes I do, yep. So, so we owned those comics. So we sold to NBC a series of 12 movies of the week's greatest here, or, uh, um Classic Illustrated Presents. And under that banner, we did Last of the Mohicans, uh, Deerslayer, Huckleberry Finn, The Time Machine. Now, what's interesting about all this is we were a bunch of kids in our 20s. We're in Park City, Utah. Um, we don't know what we don't know. So we just said, okay, we're going to do the, the, the Last of the Mohicans, and we're going to do The Time Machine. We're going to do Huckleberry Finn. We didn't know how to do them. You know, I went to Hollywood. I got writers. We got the scripts written. Um, we did an eight-and-a-half-hour miniseries, Greatest Heroes of the Bible, um, that was shot in Page, Arizona. I was there for like six months, and we were bringing in all these different actors and doing all this incredible stuff, um, and I directed all eight-and-a-half hours, back-to-back, 
with the scripts were being written as I went, so I wasn't even as prepared as we do things now. Um, but because of all the success of the TV stuff, we suddenly started getting a little better reputation, taken more seriously. As the 1980s came around, Sun Classics started to run out of steam. For one, theaters realized that four-walling didn't really benefit themselves. The movie theaters sort of figured out that they were getting screwed on this four-wall business because we were making all this money and they weren't. So they started demanding that it be modified. And it was, you know, modified from 9010, 75, 50. And by the end, it was the same 50-50 that they gave all the other smaller distribution companies. And then, of course, they don't pay you until you need another movie. So the TV part of the company became very strong and the uh, feature distribution part of the company became much, much weaker. And audience testing proved to be less reliable as time went on. We were very big on testing. We did a lot of testing of subject matters. And Search and Noah's Ark tested really strong. Um, uh, Link Experience, he tested stronger than the, the, the box office actually was. And then we did uh, one on the Kennedy assassination called The President Must Die, which tested through the roof, but was a bomb. We couldn't, we couldn't get anybody to come to the theater. So the testing became suspect um, as time went on, too. It wasn't as surefire as we thought it was. So it became much more risky doing the movies because you know, spent a lot of time investment in getting a movie made. Um, and then it can fail very quickly. It was surprisingly <laughs> less effective than we would have hoped. Add in that in 1980, Sun Classic was sold to Taft Entertainment. And with the old way of doing business not working, it was time to pivot again. So we really stopped making a lot of those movies, and the, the, the focus became more TV. And then we went more mainstream, and we did Hangar 18, which was a sci-fi thing. And, and then The Boogans was a horror movie, and we were trying to get into more mainstream kind of uh, movies. While The Boogans from 1981 was an R-rated horror movie that in no way resembled anything Sun Classic had done before, the other movie he had mentioned, Hangar 18, released the previous year, kind of did. Hangar 18 is a movie about an alien cover-up conspiracy that starred Darren McGavin and Robert Vaughn. While this movie is complete fiction, the trailer does make it sound like it's another Sun Classic documentary. How did the United States develop the technology to pull ahead of the Russians in the space race? Many believe that a sophisticated guidance system was salvaged from a crashed UFO. Now, for the first time, a motion picture tells the story of these incredible events. It started with an accident in space. And it led to the crash of a large metallic disc in the Arizona desert. Military authorities immediately sealed off the area. We think it was a controlled landing. Give me a pastor to General Morrison. You mean someone brought it in? Just lights. No visible sign of life. Not outside. And that someone is still in there. Is the government concealing information it considers too startling to reveal? Well, we're not going to go running around yelling, flying saucer. If we don't finish what we started, it's all over for the president. Keep the lid on Hangar 18. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? What is it our government doesn't want us to know? This new motion picture reveals the startling proof that the government actually has the wreckage of a flying saucer and the bodies of alien astronauts. You will learn the incredible story of the most startling government cover-up ever conceived. See the story of the UFO cover-up, Hangar 18. Sun Classic's last success is one you might actually know or remember, the 1983 Stephen King adaptation of Cujo. 
While Cujo was a minor hit, it was all downhill from here. Sun would be completely absorbed into Taft Entertainment and be defunct before 1989. One of the things that probably benefited Sun Classic was that in the 1970s, conspiracy theories were gaining in popularity. And Sun Classic was able to exploit this in a G-rated, Roger Corman-esque way. I had to be probably 7th grade, 8th grade, and I was going to a different school, and I was in the, high, the, the library of our school, and I saw a paperback copy of, that, of the book, the, the tie-in book for the Lincoln Conspiracy. And... I remember thinking, oh, gee, well, that was that crazy movie that we saw you know, years ago in fourth grade. And I looked at the book. I didn't really read it because it was, you know, I'm assuming a, just a transcription of the movie. But um, I do remember, like, seeing the, the Sun logo on there and, and, and noticing, boy, that's kind of a strange, a strange thing. Um, so uh, you know, a couple of years later, you know, some, there was some other reference that may have come up or whatever where I connected it in my mind and then... Um, I can't remember when I first read something about the company itself. It was, again, years later after I was an adult. Um, but the subject kind of stuck in my mind. Um, I had, I, over the course of my historical, sort of investigating historical things, I've, I've had an interest in uh, what I call organized deception, which is scams, cults, and conspiracy theories, basically, uh, and why these belief systems catch on and why they're so hard to shake and that kind of thing. Um, and I sort of, when I read about Sun Classic Pictures, I kind of triggered uh, both these memories and also kind of understanding of how certain deceptive narratives of history or of the past kind of get started and get circulated and why they get circulated. So that's what led to my interest and uh, eventually the blog article that I did. And it really is a fascinating subject. And sure, conspiracy theories are nothing new, not even in the 1970s, but they sure seemed to be on the rise at the time. And it very well could have been that Sun Classic's success was simply in being in the right place at the right time. And in 2018, when it seems like there's a new conspiracy theory being put out there every time you turn on your television, I asked Sean Munger if he thought there could be a direct or indirect link from what Sun Classic was doing back in the 1970s to what's going on in 2018. Now, of course, fake news is just a thing everybody says every single day. But in your blog post, it seemed like you were kind of looking back and saying, you know, the seeds of this are all the way back here. Is that accurate? I think so. Conspiracism has had a long tradition in American politics uh, for a long time. People are surprised, for example, to find out that, you know, Illuminati and New World Order theories were big in the early, like the early decades of the 19th century. Like uh, Thomas Jefferson was rumored to be a member of the Illuminati and so, I mean, the, the roots go back way, way, way farther than that. But conspiracism kind of gets reinvented for new generations and then particularly with new technologies and new forms of communication. So I think the kind of our modern sort of episode of, of or a modern incarnation of conspiracism, of course, got a boost after the uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy. And there was kind of a cottage, even starting in 1963-64, there was a cottage industry in assassination literature and assassination theories that was going on 
mainly in an underground capacity, mainly through newsletters and things like that. But that's kind of that hotbed started to get mainstream acceptance really in the 70s, particularly mid to late 70s, this exact time that Sun Classic was coming up, because one of the main things that happened in this period was uh, the Zabruder film was shown on TV for the first time in 1975. And of course, that started a whole, I mean, that was a, a big boost. Many people had not seen it. And that started the conspiracy people uh, involved in the JFK kind of cottage industry, uh, gaining a whole bunch of new sort of cultural currency. In fact, the the display of the Zabruder film led directly to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was established in 1977, to reopen and reinvestigate the assassinations of both Kennedys and Martin Luther King. This was coming up at that exact same time, and that was 1977 when the House Select Committee was was investigating. So there really was something, I think, kind of in in the cultural bloodstream at that time, and people were primed to believe in conspiratorial things and again the sort of melded to with like the ufo culture was kind of big in the 70s as well and that's i mean it's a different strain of the same kind of the same virus really but sort of in a similar vein i think james conway left sun classic around the time of cujo and would spend the next 30 years working in television he worked as a director of hire on a number of shows like Hunter and MacGyver and produced the series Charmed. He also directed episodes of Star Trek series Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He's semi-retired these days, but has recently directed episodes of The Orville on Fox and The Magicians on Sci-Fi. And while James Conway has no regrets about his time at Sun Classic that I could tell... I think this little anecdote about In Search of Noah's Ark says a lot about how he feels about some of the work he did while he was there. Yeah, I don't think people knew about Sun Classic. You mentioned some of these movies, and they remember those movies because they remember seeing the commercials, or they remember seeing them as kids. Uh, and they usually remember them much more fondly than I do. <laughs> you know, it's funny, um, um, Quentin Tarantino owns a theater here in L.A., and he runs classic movies on it. Mm-hmm. And one of the ones they, they were going to run one Saturday was In Search of Noah's Ark. And uh, uh, they asked if I would want, want to come to the screening of it or to talk or something. And I was going to be out of town. But I, A, would have loved to have gone and participated in that. In the, but at the same time, I was thinking, why would they be screening that movie? Because um, as I remember it, it wasn't very good. And finally, because it was the reason I started this particular journey, I wanted to hear his response to my brother's reaction to seeing Beyond and Back. Isn't that funny? It wasn't intended to be scary. Yeah. You know, unlike <laughs> unlike Search of Noah's Ark, where the science was a little bit suspect, I really believed in the Beyond and Back stuff. I did a lot of research into that, and I kept meeting people, even after the research was done and the script was written while we were making the movie, who had sort of had uh, those kinds of near-death experiences. So to me, there was there's a lot more stuff that you could believe in and be on this back then in Noah's Ark. And one final note. In the 2000s, there was an attempted revival of Sun Classic Pictures. While it never really went anywhere, there is a website still up that you can check out at sunclassicpictures.com. You can see some of the projects they intended to make. A biopic of jazz clarinetist Artie Shaw, a remake of Cujo, and my personal favorite, something called Pinocchio in the Hood. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. 
Special thanks to my guests, director James Conway and Sean Munger. You can visit Sean's website and check out his podcast at seanmunger.com. That's Sean with an S-E-A-N. Oh, and thanks to my brother, Eric. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Music in this episode was by Francis Prevay, BizBass Studio, Drew Banga, and Kevin McLeod, whose music appears via a Creative Commons license. There are links to all of the articles that was used to research this episode on our website at theindustrypodcast.com. That's all for this month. I'll be back again next month with another story of the things that went on in the industry.